Recently, there has been a recall of pet food. Dozens of cats and dogs have been injured or died. What is the cause of this? Is there risk to our food supply? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Carlton. Dr. Carlton is a practicing internist and addiction medicine specialist in Phoenix. He has detoxed over 30,000 patients. In addition to these duties, he is associate professor for the Maricopa Psychiatric Residency Training Program. Welcome. Welcome. Good to hear you again, Leslie. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Carlton. So fill us in on the pet food recall, please. Well, what's happened is the FDA has found a chemical called melamine in the pet food. In addition to that, researchers at Cornell, where some of these pet food studies were done, have found the, that melamine is uh, present in the urine and the kidneys of cats and dogs that were in part of the tasting test fed large amounts of this, and uh, they, cats and dogs subsequently died. The source of this appears to be one particular manufacturer located in Kansas, but like a lot of generic manufacturers, they turn around and resell their food, and then other labels can be put on it. And so in addition to the uh, generic brands, brands such as Nestle and Purina and Hills and Del Monte have also been affected. So how is wheat gluten used in pet foods? Well, wheat gluten is uh, used as a um, stabilizer uh, in pet food. Uh, remember that wheat gluten, like many of our own human patients, can be allergic to wheat gluten in terms of people with, uh, at the far end of the spectrum is celiac sprue, but there are other people who have much lower tolerances for it and may not show up as a sprue patient. But wheat gluten is a filler in a binder in wet-style foods, and that's why what you've seen really is the wet-style, the canned foods, the things that come in pouches are really there, and not really so much the pet foods that we've seen in previous types of pet recalls. It's really just a kind of a gelatinous consistency that's used to thicken up the pet food and kind of give it that gravy consistency that we see, that we believe, you know, if, if that's something that humans like, then this must be something that our dogs really and, and our cats really enjoy. Gravy, right? <laughs> yes. So how did melamine get into the wheat gluten? Well, at this time, we're really not sure what's happened, but the source of the wheat gluten has actually been traced back to a particular supplier in China. And so somehow it's gotten into the Chinese manufacturer's wheat gluten. The wheat gluten was shipped over here and then used in pet foods. So if this contaminated wheat gluten can be in pet foods, is there a risk that will happen in our food supply? It certainly is, but we tend not to use wheat gluten, number one, two, four fillers. The other thing is, is that when it comes to human food supplies, we are a lot more cautious, a lot more uh, um, there's a lot more oversight by the FDA of things that are coming, both that are made here in the United States and things that come from overseas. And at the present time, there's really no evidence at all to suggest that any imported wheat gluten uh, from China has gotten into the food supply for humans. But they are looking. But they are looking, yes. So is this the first time pet food has been recalled? Well, pet food has been recalled numerous times. We, we see this you know, occasionally with uh, fast food restaurants where there's problems. We see this with in the human food chain, in the human food supply, where there are recalls of specific food products. And we've seen it in the pet supply uh, as well. In fact, the last big one was in December of 2005, where there was a pet company that voluntarily recalled their food because aflatoxin was found uh, in its product. Okay, so uh, Dr. Carlton, you're a toxicologist, and um, I presume you know what aflatoxin is, but the rest of us don't know. Uh, what is that? Well, aflatoxin is a, a mycotoxin. It's produced by fungi, particularly fungi in the aspergillus group. 
a lot of people who particularly do in primary care medicine will have heard of aspergillus because humans, in fact, can get aspergillosis. Well, the aspergillus species that can infect humans, by and large, don't produce aflatoxin, but there are a number of other aspergillus species that can. And it's a fungi that can contaminate any kind of grain, although primarily in the human food supply, it can contaminate corn. We don't usually see it in wheat or rye or oats. But other types of products that can be contaminated are, include peanuts, uh, cottonseed, and cottonseed, therefore cottonseed oil potentially, Brazil nuts, and pistachios. So are these aflatoxin levels regulated by the FDA? Yes, they're very specific levels. And in fact, by and large, the levels are usually less than 20 parts per billion uh, in food supplies that are going to be consumed by humans. At what level do you start seeing problems? Well, that's not particularly known. There is one particular type of food that has level up to about 300 parts per billion that is considered to be safe. In the United States, we really haven't seen any human cases of aflatoxicity in quite some time. Most of the human toxicities are reported in third world countries such as India and Africa, where the regulation isn't as good. And also because the storage of these grains and nuts and cotton seeds and things like that just aren't nearly as, as good in a third world country as they would be in a place like the United States. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is toxicologist, internist, and addiction specialist, Dr. Michael Carlton. We are speaking about the recent pet food recall and the safety of the human food supply. So, Michael, these aflatoxins, what happened in 2005 when the pet food was recalled for having such a high level? What happened was that uh, some pets were getting sick, and actually some of the people's pets were dying. Usually, uh, aflatoxin is taken in by ingestion, and that's what happened with all these pets. In people who work in areas where these particular types of fungi, the, the aspergillus, can grow, there is some evidence to suggest that they may be able to get a low-level chronic exposure through inhalation. But um, most cases, uh, it's really by ingestion. What happens is that there's actually two forms of toxicity, and the form that uh, resulted in the pet food recall was acute toxicity. And this really is a problem with liver toxicity. Aflatoxins can reduce glycogen storage in the liver. And because of the reduction in glycogen, this causes accumulation of lipids, uh, producing, first of all, a fatty liver, then it goes on to a palatocellular necrosis, and finally it can lead to cirrhosis and, and liver failure. How does that differ from chronic toxicity? Well, chronic toxicity is primarily an issue of cancer. In chronic toxicity, there's a reduction of cellular immunity, which is in part related to hepatic in- injury that's gone on, but there's also direct immune suppression by aflatoxins. And given the immune suppression as well as the injury that occurs to the liver, what then can happen is as the hepatocytes are regenerating, if there's any problems in their duplication, they're not found as early, and this ends up leading to hepatocellular carcinoma. Mm-hmm. And again, we see this in humans as well? We can see this in humans as well. What would an acute case of aflatoxin exposure look like? People usually tend to say they have headaches, they have some nausea, they may develop a rash. Um, a little bit later, they can have a little pruritus. A little longer, further into this, they'll develop an acute hepatitis with jaundice. Then potentially severe ascites, portal hypertension can also develop. In fact, in India and Kenya, where there really are cases of humans that have reported, there's actually been cases that have reported of uh, massive exposure that have been led to GI bleeding and death because of the portal hypertension. In addition to this, what's interesting is that things like Rye syndrome Mm -hmm. and the nutritional disease Kwashiorkor have also been associated with aflatoxin. 
if you look at autopsy results of children who had died from Rye syndrome, there was, in fact, aflatoxin present, and that may play a role in that disease. So what is a treatment for people or pets who are exposed to aflatoxins? Well, the treatment for regardless of whether it's a human toxicity or a pet toxicity, it really is supportive. There's no specific antidote. Glutathione, which is a nonspecific liver uh, agent, can help heal the liver injury. We use glutathione to detoxify all kinds of things. In fact, we use glutathione, for example, in uh, acetaminophen or Tylenol toxicity. Uh, this has been experimentally used, but there really haven't been, it hasn't been available in the places where there have been large cases of uh, human toxicity to really find out if, it, if it's working or not yet. Mm-hmm. So, so we've talked about the melamine in the wheat gluten uh, that contaminated the recent pet food uh, two years ago, the aflatoxin in pet food. Is there anything else that we should be concerned about either for ourselves and our food supply or for our pets? So what we really have to worry about are two things. Number one is is infectious agents, and infectious agents can always get in. And the problem with infectious agents, Leslie, as you know, is that it may be a direct result of the infection, or the infectious agent may leave a toxin, like in the case of aflatoxin that we've been talking about. The other thing we have to think about is when there's a change in manufacturing process. It was only about in the late 80s when tryptophan was on the market, and there were three manufacturers of that uh, amino acid. And one of the manufacturers changed their process, and in the process of changing their production process, they, caused, they created a problem. There was an impurity that was introduced into their supply, and it led to a, a lot of people getting sick with what we now know as eosinophilia myalgia syndrome. Once that came off the market, it actually took a long time. It's really only been the last year or so where tryptophan has been put back on the market. So you have to think about things like direct toxicity and, and infection. You have to think about the... Uh, chemicals that these yeast and fungi and other bacteria may make. And then you also have to think about the things that we may introduce as we decide that uh, there are more efficient manufacturing processes to get uh, our food into uh, to our tables. So we not only have to think about food, but also non-prescription supplements, um, like the tryptophan or, or many of the health food kinds of products as well. That's right. We do. We even sometimes see it. It's, not, it's pretty rare, but we sometimes see problems in the manufacturing of prescription drugs. But usually there's such tight controls on those uh, that usually gets stopped long before it ever hits the shelf. Well, I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Michael Carlton. We have been discussing the recent pet food recall and the safety of our human food supply. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.